Hey, let's get jump in. Open your Bibles. Luke chapter 1. If you remember last week, we looked at the prologue of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the introduction, the first four verses. And I want to challenge you this morning to think about the Bible, and specifically this Gospel of Luke, in a little different way. Because sometimes we just read the Bible, and it's just a book, and it's just words on paper, and it's just history or information, or this thing we go to as sort of a self-help manual. I want you to think about the Gospel of Luke this morning as a movie. As this story that you were engaging and entering into. You know at the beginning of a movie sometimes, there's a narrator that sets the stage for you? The movie begins and then all of a sudden this voice comes on and begins to talk to you about where you are and what's happening. Or sometimes in other movies, the narrator uh, is, is text that comes on the screen to let you know where you are, what's happening. But then, the voice will fade away, the text will dissolve or scroll off into outer space, and the camera will zoom in and we know that the story is about to begin. This morning, Luke's prologue is over, the narration is done, and his story of God in our midst is now underway, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. Right at the beginning of our story today, we meet our main characters, our main characters for today, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And God is going to use these two individuals to teach us this morning. Luke's going to use them to teach us something about what it means to be faithful. We're going to learn some things about faithfulness today. And if you want a good working definition of faithfulness, if you want... Just a simple way of discovering and deciding if you are or not being faithful. We get a very good working definition right here at the beginning in the middle of verse 6. It says this, both of them, both Zechariah and Elizabeth, both of them were upright in the sight of God. Other translations will say, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, or both of them did right in the sight of God. You want a simple way to decide if you're being faithful if you go through life? With every action or word or thought or response that you have, just ask yourself, is this right in the sight of God? And if the answer is yes, then you are being faithful. So now we have this, this sort of working definition of faithfulness. And here's what we're told about Zechariah. He's a priest in the division of Abijah. You see, priests in ancient Israel, all the priests in this land were descendants of Aaron. You guys know who Aaron is, right? Aaron is the brother of Moses. Remember Moses, the guy, the staff and the Red Sea and the Pharaoh, let my people go from way, way back in the story? Well, Moses has a brother. His name's Aaron. Aaron was the high priest of the nation of Israel. He's given all the priestly responsibilities and duties. And so to be a priest in this nation, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. We're told that Moses is a descendant of Aaron. I'm sorry. We're told that Zechariah is a descendant of Aaron. We're also told that his wife is a descendant of Aaron. You know what that means, right? That Elizabeth's dad was a priest. So we just have a couple of preacher's kids here, right? A couple of preacher's kids who continue to be preachers. Priest's kids who are now priests. But these two are really nothing special. 
It seems like, man, they're priests, they're significant, they're somebody. But the reason Luke tells us this information is because he wants us to understand that these guys are not really that special. In fact, during this time period, scholars believe there were as many as 20,000 priests in the nation of Israel. See, Aaron lived a long, long time ago. And he had kids, and his kids had kids, and those kids had kids, and kids, kids, kids had kids. And it goes all the way down until finally the descendants of Aaron, to be a descendant of Aaron, simply meant that you were one of 20,000 priests. There were so many priests that they were divided up into divisions. 24 different divisions of priests. So, Zachariah and Elizabeth, just one of 20,000, just a couple of pastor's kids, quietly, faithfully serving God, nothing real out of the normal, nothing anyone would probably take note of. These are not significant, famous people. And here's the first thing we learn about faithfulness in this story. Faithfulness begins in the everyday little things of life. Faithfulness just starts in all the little stuff that you do with your life every single day. You see, sometimes we get this idea about faithfulness, especially faithfulness as it relates to God. And we have these grand ideas of these huge moments where we're going to make these enormous decisions to follow God and do something risky or sacrificial for Him. And yet, faithfulness always finds its roots back to the everyday, simple decisions of your life that no one ever notices. Faithfulness begins in the everyday little things of life. That's Zechariah, that's Elizabeth, faithfully serving God every, every single day, completely under the radar. No one even sees it. Luke begins his story. If you go back to the beginning of verse 5, you'll notice this. Luke begins his story with these words. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, These words are important because they, again, set the tone and the tenor and the tension of the setting in which Zechariah and Elizabeth are living out these faithful lives. So their everyday lives of faithfulness are significant because they are living this way in the time of Herod, king of Judea. And what we know about Herod is this. He's the first in a long line of Herods. This is Herod the first. He, He calls himself, does anyone know? His name for himself, Herod the... Herod the Great. You can tell what kind of guy he is already, right? He names himself Herod the Great. He's a little bit of a narcissist. Herod the Great was anything but great. He was actually the most notorious ruler in all of Palestine. He ruled from about 37 BC to 4 AD, about 41 years. History tells us this. He was an extremely jealous and paranoid man who lived with this constant fear and suspicion that somebody was going to try to steal his throne from him. And because of this, he did some extremely horrible things. A few examples. Herod, at one point, had the Jewish high priest drowned. He murdered the most important person in the people group that he was ruling over. He had him drowned. That guy, that high priest, just happened to be his wife's brother, so he murdered the high priest, who was also his brother-in-law, and then to silence his wife, he had her killed. Then, knowing that mother-in-laws can sometimes be a problem when you kill their daughters, he had his mother-in-law killed as well. Then, fearing his sons might not like the fact that he killed their mom and grandma, he killed two of them. Five days before his death, he had a third son executed. Three of Herod's sons killed by his own hand. At one point, 
Because Herod heard that there had been a baby born in Bethlehem who was to be a king of sorts. Herod had all the male children, two years old and under, killed in that entire region. Some of you will remember that story. Finally, right before his death, Herod knew he was dying. He knew he was going to die. He knew that no one would care. He knew that no one would mourn his death. And to, and to ensure that there would be tears, that there would be mourning, that there would be weeping in the streets when he died, before he died, he rounded up all the distinguished people in Jerusalem. He had them imprisoned. And then he gave this order. When I die, they are all to be executed because he wanted people to be sad when he died. That's just a little picture of who Herod was and the way he ruled. And now you understand the setting a bit more. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, not an easy time to faithfully serve God. Now, to make matters even worse, Herod's reign, his 41-year reign, comes along at the end of a very difficult and trying period in the history of the nation of Israel comes along right at the end of a 400-year period where God has been silent. The prophet Malachi was the last prophet to speak for God. He wrote 400, about 400 years earlier. And for 400 years now, God's people have been enslaved and they've been ruled by a variety of different pagan nations. And during this time, they've been praying to God, they've been worshiping God, and they've been waiting for God to show up on the scene and deliver them and save them and speak to them and use them and guide them the way He promised that He would. But for 400 years, they have heard nothing. They keep calling God... And all they hear on the other end of the line is silence. No prophets, no miracles, no angels, no revelation from God at all. At one point during this 400-year period, this is perhaps the low point, a Greek general by the name of Epiphanes overthrew the city of Jerusalem, God's holy city, took it over. And then this is what he did. He marched into the temple, walked straight into the Holy of Holies, and sacrificed a pig on the Holy t- uh, the holy altar of God. He desecrated this pagan general, desecrated the place where the Jews believed God himself dwelt in their midst. And their very clear expectation, the clear expectation of the Jewish people was this. If someone were to do that, if someone were to go into the Holy of Holies, this place where God dwelt, and act in such a way, they would instantly be struck dead. Not Epiphanes. He walked right out. And it was at this moment that so many Jews, that many, many Jews abandoned temple worship. It was at this moment that many, many Jews abandoned their feeling that God was with them any longer, abandoned their belief that God's presence was still to be found in the temple. People during this period of history, during this 400-year period of silence, they were walking away from God in droves. But not the characters in our story today. Zechariah and Elizabeth are still hanging in there. And what's so amazing about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that even more than most, even more than your average Jew, 
in Jerusalem or Israel, they had reason to doubt God. It says they were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. Then verse 7, But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Friends, hear me on this. Listen real careful. At some point in your Christian life, you will feel like God gets real quiet. At some point in your journey of faith, you will begin to feel like God is inactive, that He's not listening, that He has gone utterly and completely silent, like you're talking, but you're not sure anyone is on the other end of the line. And when that happens, when you come to this moment in your journey of faith, you are going to be tempted to ask questions like this. Why am I still doing this? Why am I still playing this game? Why am I still serving? Why am I still giving? Why am I still believing and obeying? Why am I following God? Why am I following a God who does not even answer my prayers? What's amazing about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that in the midst of God's silence to their nation and in the midst of God's silence to them personally, they just keep doing what's right in the sight of God. You see, real faithfulness is revealed not in the good times. Real faithfulness is not revealed when things are easy and going smooth and just the way you like. Real faithfulness is revealed when times are difficult and hard and confusing. And that's what we see in Zechariah and Elizabeth. Got any struggles in your life right now? Got any difficulties, any places where you've been waiting and wanting God to show up and He just hasn't yet, not in the way you've asked Him to? You see, what separates Zachariah and Elizabeth from everybody else, what pulls them out of the pack, it's not how good they look, it's not how popular they are or how blessed they seem to be, it's the fact that no matter what life throws their way, they continue to just be upright in the sight of God. See, sometimes challenges are your best opportunities to be faithful. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. This, my friends, is Zechariah's lucky day. He has finally won the pastor-priest lottery. He's been playing the Powerball for years, and finally all the numbers are lining up. Because, friends, there were so many priests. We've already talked about this. Thousands and thousands of priests. 20,000 priests. So many priests that your division, the division of, that you were sort of assigned to, it all, you only had the chance to serve in the temple with your division two weeks a year. Two weeks a year. You just you go to the temple... And perform the duties that you love to perform and that you were trained to do. And during those two weeks, each day, they would cast lots to see who got to perform certain tasks, certain duties. Who had the privilege of doing things like offering certain sacrifices and such. And burning incense on the golden altar in the holy place would have been one of the highest honors for a priest. 
A priest was only permitted to do this, to burn incense in the holy place, on the golden altar. He was only permitted to do this one time in his life. And many would never be chosen. But today, Zechariah's number gets called, and he, in his old age, is going to get his shot. Here's what Zechariah would have done on this day. He would have gathered with the rest of the priests from his division in the courtyard of the priests. And from the altar in the middle of that courtyard, he would have gathered some coals into a golden bowl. In his other hand, most likely his right hand, he would have grabbed a handful of incense. And then as the priests prayed, he would have walked up the steps and he would have walked out of the courtyard and into the temple, into the room called the holy place, the room that was only divided... Um, that was only divided from the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, by a curtain. Now Zechariah would be by himself in the most holy place, a place he'd never been before, a place he would never be again. And it was his job to burn the incense on the golden altar. And so he would walk in, and he would walk down the corridor to the west, toward the altar. And when he got to the golden altar, he would lay the coals out on the altar. And then as he prayed for his nation, and prayed for his people, and prayed that God would come and speak, and break the silence and direct them and finally send the Savior. As he prayed those things, he would throw the incense onto the coals and the smoke and the fragrance would go up and it would fill the temple and it would go out of the, out of the roof, out of the ceiling and the people out in the courtyards, they would see the smoke and they would know that the priest was offering prayers and they would join him in prayer. That's exactly what's going on right now. So he's walked in to this place. He has offered this sacrifice, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do this, and he is praying for his people, and he's praying for his nation, and the people have joined him. And then verse 11, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, And you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And this is where the story starts to get fun. This is where we we have a little twist in the expected Zachariah is in there, he's praying, he's put the coals down, he's thrown the incense on, the smoke, and the, the incense has gone up, and now he's praying for the nation, and I don't know if he had his eyes closed or what, but he probably did, and when he opens his eyes there, standing on the right side of the altar, an angel, right, just kind of chilling out, hey Zachariah, what's up, right, not something Zachariah expected, I don't think at this point, Probably startling. Actually, it does. We read that he is startled. It's the standard angel-human response. Complete and utter fear. And the angel's going through their routine. Don't be afraid. How many times do we have to tell these stinking humans not to be afraid? Every time we show up, they're afraid. And we have to do the same little banter. Don't be afraid. So he says, don't be afraid. And then he says this to Zechariah. Your prayer's been heard. And this is one of those moments where I don't know exactly what's happening in Zechariah's mind, but the question I have is, what prayer is he referring to? 
Is this the, is he talking about the prayer that Zechariah just prayed in that moment? The prayers he was certainly offering for his nation and for his people and for the Savior and for the Messiah? Is that the prayer? Or is he talking about the thousands and thousands of prayers that he and his wife have prayed for decades for a child? Which prayer does, does the angel say, your prayer's been heard? Which prayer is he referring to? And I believe, friends, the answer here is... Yeah, you guys know. That's like a Carl trick, isn't it? The answer here is yes. Yes to both. And the angel tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And he's going to be a source of joy in this world. This, verse 15, it says, he's not to take wine or fermented drink. And he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even at birth. The idea here is, is this child is going to be anointed. And he's going to be set, a, set apart to do something extremely special for God. And then come the words that would have blown Zechariah away. This is the moment I think that Zechariah just gets like punched in the nose and the light bulbs go on and he realizes, holy moly, this is a big deal. Verse 17. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Remember how I told you that there's been a period of silence, a 400-year period of silence? This means that, means that Zechariah has not heard anything from God for his entire lifetime. His parents, nothing. His parents, parents, nothing. His parents, 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 nothing. There's been a 400-year gap. The season of silence. And remember how I told you the very last word from God that the people had received came from the prophet Malachi? Well, here's what the, the very last thing the prophet Malachi says. The prophet Malachi says, at some point, God is sending a Savior. At some point, God is sending a Messiah to you. And he's going to come down. And he's going to be in your midst. And he's going to deliver you and save you. But before he says that, he says this. Malachi says, before that day, I will send you the prophet Elijah. And see if you recognize these words. This is Malachi 4, 6, right at the end of the Old Testament. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Do those words sound familiar? The words of Malachi about the one who will come right before the Savior are the same words this angel speaks to Zechariah about this son that his wife is about to have. And Zechariah, he would have known these words. They would have been burned on his brain. And when the angel said them, all of a sudden he would have realized the silence. The silence that he and all of his people had experienced for the past 400 years was over. Think about that. Think about how huge this moment is. Think about the significance, the the enormity of the significance of this moment. Think about the moments that Zechariah now knows lie ahead. This is the moment he and all of his countrymen have been waiting for. God in their midst. God coming. The Savior, the Messiah, is finally on his way. Verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Do you see how tactful he is here, guys? This is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth it for the gentleman in the crowd. Do you see how he phrases this so tactfully? He's like, 
Yo, angel man, you sure you got the right guy? Because I'm old, and let's just say between you and me, my wife, she's well along in years. You seen her lately? See, he phrases it real careful because he knows this sort of stuff gets written down from time to time. He doesn't want to going around in the email chain. My wife is well along in years. And I love the angel's response. Zechariah, I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. It's like the angel says, yeah, I'll see your old age and raise you a messenger of the Most High God. Zechariah's like, do you know who I am? Do you know who you're talking to? I am old. And Gabriel's like, yeah. Do you know who I am? I'm messenger of the Most High God, and that trumps your old. So listen up, bub. And now we learn something else about faithfulness in this moment. This time, we don't learn it from Zechariah. This time we learn it from Gabriel. Faithfulness is believing that God's ability to work in your life is not based on who you are, but who He is. Faithfulness is believing that God's ability to work in your life is not based on who you are, how old you are, how young you are, how smart you are, how not smart you are, how cute you are, or how not cute you are. It does not matter. It is not based on you. It is based on Him. Some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to be reminded of that because your determining factor for the things God can accomplish in and through your life is you, your limited gifts and your limited talents and your limited abilities and your limiting circumstances. And God says, I am so much bigger than you. Friends, if God calls you to do something, if He says, come join me in this, faithfulness is not focusing on who you are or who you are not. Faithfulness is always remembering who He is. I am Gabriel and I am a messenger of the Most High God. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Zechariah. Got any challenges in your life too big for you to handle on your own? This is a moment where, this is a great question because... People of little faithfulness, people of little faith, people who do not realize how big their God is, rarely step out and take on things that they cannot handle in their own giftedness or strength. Other people, people of great faith, they're always getting themselves way in over their heads because they know the one who stands behind, the one who supports, the one who calls is powerful enough to do even more than they can do. When, when we are weak, He is strong. That's what the Bible teaches. Got any challenges in your life too big for you to handle on your own? If not, I'd have to say, are you living a life of faithfulness? The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. They're probably nervous. They're probably thinking he blew it and said something blasphemous and was struck dead by God. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. 
Now, a lot is said about these verses, a lot of different interpretations, a lot of different messages that we could pull out here. Here's my take. Here's what I believe the core message is in these verses for you, for you and I today. Our doubt, our disbelief, our lack of faithfulness will not halt the plans of God, just our ability to be a part of them. Our doubt, our disbelief, our lack of faithfulness will not halt the plans of God, but only limit our ability to be a part of them. You see, think about this moment. How much joy would Zechariah have had in coming out of the temple and making this announcement? 400 years of silence. 400 years of praying and seeking and hoping and longing and from God, nothing. And now Zechariah on his big day, he's the one who gets the message. How great would it be to come bursting out of the temple doors and stand in front of all your fellow priests and say, he's back. You're right. I just saw an angel. My wife's going to be pregnant. If you don't believe me, just wait a few months. He's going to be the forerunner. The Messiah is coming. God is on the move in our midst again. How exciting, how wonderful, how marvelous would that have been for Zechariah to do that? And yet, he can only stand there and play charades. (laughs) Zechariah's limitations were bigger than God's promises, and so he misses out. What amazing moments and opportunities and adventures are you missing out on because you're so focused on your limitations and not focused enough on God's promises? When his time of service was completed, verse 23, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me. Listen to these words, she says. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. You know, it's interesting to me that this entire story is about Zechariah. You kind of get Zechariah and Elizabeth at the beginning, but then it's all Zechariah. It's all about him and this interaction, this moment that he has. At the very end, the very end of the story, at the conclusion, as Luke tries to kind of tie it all up and bring it all together, we're back to Elizabeth. We're back to his wife. And the word that sticks out to me in this section is I think perhaps the key word and the key reason why we are back to Elizabeth. It's that little word disgrace. In these days, he, the Lord, has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. That's the same word there um, in the Greek for the word shame. Think about that for a minute. See, the reason we're back to Elizabeth is because although both Zechariah and Elizabeth would have experienced shame and disgrace for the fact that they were not able to have kids, Elizabeth would would have bore the primary burden of this. She would have been the one who is considered to be at fault. You see, in this world, in the first century world, a couple couldn't have kids. They just blamed the woman. It's all the woman's fault. Something went wrong in the marriage, woman's fault. Something didn't go as planned, woman's fault. They can't have kids, woman's fault. It was a great, great world to live in. (laughs) Not really. Okay. So she would have borne the shame. She would have been the one who got the remarks and the looks. She, you ever been in a place where you've been shamed? You ever experienced disgrace? 
How about public humiliation? How about the place of your greatest pain and, and, and your most significant shortcomings on display for the world to see? Can you imagine living a life like this? How many people said to Elizabeth, you know, that God you keep serving, the one you think is going to show up someday, he won't even give you a kid. You're pathetic, Elizabeth. You see, the level of shame and disgrace that she's been carrying around for years, just heavy. And in this moment, God has removed it. He's validated her faithfulness. He said, you were right all along. I've been here every step of the way. One thing about the Bible is that in this culture, in the Hebrew culture, and in the scriptures, names mean a lot. What a person's name means often informs what the story is really driving at and what's happening there. Does anyone here know what Elizabeth's name means? Here's what it means. It means, my God is an oath. Elizabeth, my God is an oath. Or, my God is faithful. See, at the very end of this story, as we've talked about faithfulness and faithfulness and faithfulness, here's what we discover at the very end. The one who's truly faithful, the one who's really faithful, the one whose faithfulness is lifted up above all else is not Zachariah's faithfulness. It's not Elizabeth's faithfulness. It's the faithfulness of the Lord. Zechariah, that name means God remembers. The message of this little story is God has not forgotten. He has not forgotten his people. He has not forgotten this little old couple. He has not forgotten you. He remembers. He remembers his promises. And he is faithful. Friends, faithful lives are built on belief in a faithful God. Faithful lives are built on belief and a faithful God. How was Elizabeth faithful for all these years, carrying around this disgrace and shame? It's because she refused to let go of this idea that her God was faithful no matter what anybody else told her. My God remembers. He remembers His promises. He remembers His oath. He is faithful. Friends, I suppose that's probably the most important thing for us to walk away with today. Not get out there and go on and try harder to be faithful. Work harder at it. Strive for it. Buckle down. Do it in your own strength. In your own strength, you will fail. The key to faithfulness, the key to the faithfulness of these two individuals, the key to faithfulness for you and me is an increasing knowledge and understanding and reliance and dependence on the one who is ultimately faithful. The same God who from here will go on to be faithful, to come to earth, redeem his people, fulfill all the promises that he's ever given. That story's to come. But for today, Elizabeth, Zechariah, faithful people, because they know they serve a faithful God. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had to spend together today. I think again about our Hispanic brothers and sisters. We pray another blessing over their ministry and the unity we'll have together in serving you and advancing the kingdom. 
I pray, Lord, that more than us going from this place and trying to be faithful, that we will set our sights on you, the one who is ultimately faithful, the one who empowers faithfulness in us. And God, may our faithfulness come from a dependence on you, and then may you in turn get all the glory, all the glory. In the same way Elizabeth gave the glory to you, may we as a church give glory to you, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. We pray it in Christ's name.